Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. We are your hosts, Anna Lazarus and Michaela Gill. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. In a surprise turn of events, the Conservative government announced that the minimum wage in Ontario will be rising to $15 an hour come January. This policy could potentially give liquor servers a historic 19.5% wage increase, and yet it comes three years after it was first proposed by the Liberal Party. Is it too little, too late? In this episode, we discuss the new minimum wage with Craig Pickthorne of the Living Wage Network of Ontario, Julie Kwasinski of the Canadian Federation for Independent Businesses, and Dr. Darius Ornston of the Monk School of Global Affairs. To understand how this increase will impact workers and businesses while evaluating why this raise may look important to some and underwhelming to others. We are joined today by Craig Pickthorne, the Communications Coordinator at the Ontario Living Wage Network. He is responsible for maintaining their website, database, and social media accounts. Craig also works with dozens of local organizers across Ontario to field media inquiries and government deputations. To start us off, so what did you think of the minimum wage increase to $15? Let's start with that. Well, I think, you know, on the one hand, you kind of have to recognize something that's good when you see it. So a 4.5% raise is technically good, I suppose. But on the other hand, for example, in Toronto, uh, you know, the living wage has been calculated at $22.08. So that's a difference, of course, of $7.08. So every week, someone is going to be short by almost $250 when they try to make ends meet. That's how much they come up short if they're earning a, a minimum wage as of January 1st. So there's still a long way to go. That's, yeah, that's really interesting, especially comparing those two differences. So did the announcement surprise you, though, I think, especially when we think back three years ago to comments that from the, from the Conservative government uh, or even to Doug Ford's comment, I think uh, as early as 2019, you know, calling this the same policy a, uh, a job killer. Expecting, I guess, this more, maybe less from the government? It was a bit of a surprise, yeah, to be honest. Uh, certainly it was a surprise to watch the... Uh, announcement take place and here the Ontario Living Wage Network quoted directly not only by the some participants of the announcement but also by the reporters uh, very first questions were about how very different uh, or much less the uh, proposed minimum wage would be to the living wage and you know it's certainly a, it's frustrating for me so I can only imagine if you had someone on who actually has to I mean I I have a great job okay so I recognize that that privilege, but if I was someone that was working at the lowest wage levels, I can't imagine the frustration that you would hear that announcement made by a previous government, and I believe in 2017, and if they had followed through with that plan, if the current government had not canceled that plan to implement a $15 minimum wage and also tie it to inflation, then you would have areas in the province that would be at or close to a living wage now because they had stuck to that plan. I mean, it's just deeply frustrating. And, you know, a little befuddling too, because it was, as you said, the government, many, many in government said it was too much and too soon, and there wasn't enough consultation and, and all sorts of things. And now's not the right time, but I suppose it was the right time. I guess it kind of just took a pandemic to get us there. So we've been talking about the living wage for our listeners who may not know exactly what it is. 
what is the living wage and how do we measure it? You kind of get a sense of what a living wage is just by its name, but more specifically for us, the living wage is actually a calculation. So what we do is we look at all the major factors, the costs that go into just making ends meet where you live. So in Toronto, of course, we look at shelter costs, a child care, transportation and food. We also look at other items that I think we could all agree that are essential, such as uh, internet access, cell phone plans for the parents and non-OHIP medical costs. And then after that, you look at any eligible or applicable government transfers, taxes, or benefits. Uh, what you get in the end is a hourly wage that a working adult working full-time must earn in order to make ends meet where they live. So in Toronto, uh, where I'm speeding th speaking through the mighty CIET, it's kind of a trip to be on here, by the way, as a listener for many years when I lived there. Uh, so in Toronto, it's $22.08. Yeah, that, that brings us, as you said earlier, uh, quite far from the, the current minimum wage or the, the minimum wage that will be updated as yeah. of January 1st. So just to keep, keep the listeners uh, into the loop, what is the Living Wage Network? How guys? How long have you guys been around? Sure, yeah. What kind of info can we get from you guys? So livingwage.ca, uh, the Ontario Living Wage Network is uh, started off a, a bunch of years ago, 2016. But what it is, is uh, there were cities and towns across the province that were calculating living wages. And they got together one day in Toronto and they said, let's actually combine our efforts and synchronize the calculations and make sure the calculations are the same in all areas of the province and, and coordinate our efforts. So out of that came the Ontario Living Wage Network. And so we do two primary things. One is we oversee the calculation of what are now uh, 28 local living wage calculations, make sure they're all done the same way and they're peer reviewed by local organizers. Then the second thing that we, primary thing that we do is we certify and recognize and celebrate employers who actually pay a living wage and not only now, but they, in order to remain certified, employers have to agree to track any increases in the living wage. And spoiler alert, living wages go up year after year. So those are their two main activities. So you mentioned the living wage in Toronto was about $22.08. I've also seen a lot of suggestions to have the minimum wage calculated as 60% of the average revenue in, in your given area. So let's say the greater Toronto region. If we take the province out at a whole, that would take us to about $18. So I know for, for a good part of the province, that would bring the minimum wage above the, the living wage. It doesn't for Toronto, but just wondering what you thought about this metric. Any way that you do the minimum wage floor, that's not just politically set. And if you enter into some kind of facts or ritual costs that people are experiencing is much better than just a let's arbitrarily set it every couple of years. So I would encourage them to go a step further and actually have it like a, a calculation like we do and, and update it regularly. Our certified living wage employers are never caught with surprised or off guard by an increase in living wage rates because they are announced on the Monday of living wage week, which is the first week in November every year. There's no surprises. But I mean, what you mentioned there, I, th I believe that's called a a median wage, it, but what you what you say does sound a, a little closer to to something akin to a calculation. So it's just, that's a good thing. A lot of this came out at the same time. 
Yeah. And I think that's why we had such an interesting discourse around this uh, for the first time. And, and it's also kind of interesting to see a little bit of what the government's saying. I know the Minister of Finance, so Peter Benther Flavi, said in an interview, um, we also recognize that for too long workers have been falling behind and that wages for many have not kept up with the cost of living. They had Ontario's back and now our government has theirs. Ontario's workers should be in a race to the top and not a race to the bottom. I thought this is a really interesting statement. He he gave a lot of interviews, and so we, we got to hear this uh, quite quite often uh, the first two weeks in November. Do you really do we really believe that a minimum a fifteen dollar minimum wage is in line with this statement, though? What it is 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 a a step in the right direction, and I think you know, like I said, you have to recognize that. But it's it's the minimum that you can possibly get away with. It's not a live calculation. It doesn't factor in real costs that workers have to face. And it's just what our employers are, they just want to know what, what can I pay so that I know I'm not keeping anybody in working poverty. I don't, nobody likes working poverty. Everybody can agree upon that. So what is it, what is it? Tell me, tell me what is that rate? And we calculate it and then we, we actually, you don't have to be a certified living wage employer to pay it. You can go on our website and you can see all their calculations, they're public. So that's, that's what, that, I think that's the difference. And that's, you know, it's funny when people say things like that, what they're acknowledging is that it's, it's just intrinsically unfair and it's not right that someone would work full time and yet still not be able to make ends meet. Everyone knows that. So I think that's what's sort of encoded in that statement. But the, the second part of it is it kind of falls apart because nobody is making ends meet on $15 an hour. And I'll add that our living wage calculation, some, some call it a survival wage. And I don't disagree with that because it doesn't have things like debt servicing, retirement savings, savings for education. You know, it doesn't have any of that. Our calculation is, is very basic. So, and just looking at the difference between that and the $15 minimum wage, there's just always a big difference. You're never making ends meet. What would you like to see from these governments? What can, what can they start to do to address this discrepancy? between, you know, living wage, or as you said, I actually really like the term survival wage and minimum wage. Well, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be glib, but just pay enough so that people can make the minimum wage floor enough so that people can make ends meet. So on the one hand, it's, you know, that's, that's like the simple glib answer. Getting people used to annual increases to the minimum wage was, was a great thing. Um, that came in on Bill 148. You know, and that was supposed to be tied to inflation. Uh, I think that's also it. It it livens up the the wage in in a sense in that it it ties it to something that's actually happening in the world, uh, which wasn't always the way. And actually, a lot of people, you'll find a lot of people that are were surprised at that up until 2017 that it wasn't it wasn't actually tied to anything in the world. That's a good thing that they started to do that. Just do it more. You can make a minimum wage and not make ends meet anywhere in the province. How are we breaking the blow to businesses in the sense? Because we did see a bit of a, a negative reaction to these news from some businesses, particularly people uh, who employed servers and liquor servers who also saw their, who who would potentially see their minimum wage also re, uh, rise to $15. Yeah, I feel in a sense that the lead was buried in that on that day on November 2nd, because that's a 4.5% raise for most everybody else on minimum wage, but server's wage. 
jumped up, uh, but it's like $2 and change. So it's a big, much bigger increase. Mm-hmm. It also removes the, this, it starts to move us towards contemplating a gratuity free work environment. It's very, it's very tricky. And I, I acknowledge that because I don't have any background in, in hospitality. So we never want to be in a position where we're advocating for someone to work or earn less for hours worked. And gratuity sort of makes that very complex. So I was wondering, you know, how do we reconcile the fact that, you know, we, we do want to keep seeing the government reach for for bigger wage increases right. and go go meet the living wage. But on the other side, we do have, you know, businesses who are, who are a little hurt by this, particularly, you know, uh, the liquor and server wage that went up. It was 19.5%, biggest increase in history for them. Okay, so Anna, we have we have uh, over 400 certified living wage employers right now, and they pay, like I said, not only the living wage when they certify, but they track any increases as time goes forward. We have very, very few employers that come to us and say, I, you know what, I can't do this increase this year. Sometimes we have uh, increases of $1 and $2, uh, but everybody knows what's coming, and we actually give them warning. We go, we're run the numbers over the summer and we're able to take a take a guesstimate and 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 look look at what's coming so no one's surprised i understand that just having something sprung on you like this because the, there was a scheduled increase in uh, october and then all of a sudden november 2nd without any warning there's this announcement and so i'd say to employers that are struggling with that that are struggling with this arbitrary increase look at becoming a certified living wage employer you'll be able to tell the world that you you've taken a stand against working poverty and you will never ever be surprised by an announcement that you must pay more because we do so on the first monday of every november i think i'm quite surprised as well that we don't expect businesses to to be paying a living wage or you know maybe maybe i wouldn't go so far as to say this but like we know that businesses, if they can, would prefer to pay the minimum wage. Right now, it's it's very difficult to do so given there's there's a labor shortage. What what are we missing here, and why why are we making it easier for businesses not to pay, you know, more than the minimum wage? I don't know. That's tough. You know, like uh, one thing I noticed that when we have this conversation with uh, folks, sometimes uh, municipalities or larger employers, maybe uh, maybe just people that talk to us about what we do. We get a lot of uh, people that uh, have this outdated, inaccurate idea of who earns a minimum wage and who would benefit from having that raised up to a living wage. We always, always got to hear about how students are, well, you know, who mostly work minimum wage students. And so that's the first just absolute misconception. That's not true. And then, so when you, you know, you're not supposed to win arguments by just citing facts and figures and things, but I'll do it. Uh, an economist named David McDonald published a report from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. He found that in Ontario, specific 18% were under the age of 20, earning a minimum wage. So it's not true to say that, oh, it's only students and people living at home and, and, and so forth. And the second thing, and I don't need to cite any facts or figures here or studies, is that, so what? Students are are going to be facing a debt-ridden situation when they try to go to post-secondary education. A lot of times, students are are working, 
you know, this is not Andy and Mayberry anymore. Like students are, are, are support helping to support their families. Many times uh, they do have bills to pay. It comes down to, if you, you need the work done, if it's that important to have that, that work done, then pay a living wage. And a lot of times people get hung up on how we calculate a living wage. Cause we look at things like child cares as part of the, it's, it's an aggregate, it's a weighted average because we actually look at uh, three different types of families to including a single person uh, to look at what expenses that we use to go into the calculation, but they get hung up on that. And it's just a little frustrating because this, the point is not to, to, you never want to be in a situation where you're, you're paying someone based on what you think their living situation is. That's crazy. Just pay them a living wage. And it's a, it's a, it's a minimum wage, like it's a, a wage floor. And we just calculate that. And it has to be one, by the way, you can't have multiple living wages. So you do that just once a year. And that's the, that should be the wage floor. Yeah, that's, I, that's really interesting. We're kind of touching on something, you know, that makes me think about the way we value labor. And it's quite interesting that, as you said, if it's a student, it's okay that, you know, we, we either pay them less or we don't value the work the same. And so how do we decide if a person working in hospitality or in retail should make X amount of money? Where, where do we say, okay, you know what, this feels like someone who, who makes coffees should make $15 an hour. And so how do we value this work? And so how can we get towards a place where we can value the work more fairly? I think number one is we have to have people in, in positions of decision-making and power that actually reflect the workforce that they're speaking for. Typically when we hear ideas about the value of work and how they'd like to stratify it into these different, oh, this is unskilled and oh, this is a student wage. And these are people that paid $500 a year for university when the Beatles were topping the charts. Get some people that are, are, have actually experienced working poverty have actually experienced the barriers to higher pain poverty, have been in the real world uh, and not making those decisions for others for 40 years. Yeah, I think it's very complex. So I'm. I think it's great that we, you know, kind of get to think about this and talk about it and also realize, you know, that we, we do value certain work differently and it's very tied to either education in some, in some cases, your, your production value. So it's quite interesting to kind of take a step back and think about the people behind that work. Yeah, for sure. And, and production, the output of production is, is gone up. The economist Jim Stanford studies this. It just keeps going up and up and then the wages are stagnant. So you're not tying it to the, okay, but you want the work done, but you're not tying it to the productivity. Uh, you're not tying it to education because there's lots of people with an education working minimum wage so what is it? What's it going to be? You know, there are businesses who truly believe they cannot provide a living wage. So let's go back to Toronto and think about that roughly $22 an hour. You know, what would you say to these business owners who say, you know, if, if I have to pay such a wage, I, I cannot operate. You know, when you, when someone that works for you is not having to work a second job just to make ends meet, you're going to see a return on that. You know, when you start to look at your, the people that work for you is less as a cost to be suppressed and more as something that's an integral part of the success of your business, then there's ways to adjust your model to reflect that. And over 400 employers, including many in the hospitality 
is it fair to expect people to be living on the minimum wage? And if not, you know, what are we telling these people? Are we, instead of raising the minimum wage, we'll raise you above the minimum wage? Do you think that's an interesting strategy, something that's worthwhile? Well, I think investment in training is is good, um, as long as it's responsive to the needs of both the people receiving the training and the workplaces that are supposed to receive the the end product of that. But what's tacitly, what do they tacitly acknowledge in that statement? It's that there's a place in this province, there's places in this province that we're totally fine with where you can work full-time and not be able to make ends meet. We've known for years that it's not just students and people with no bills to pay earning minimum wage, but we're okay with that. We're going to support these businesses and these business models by making it okay. And so there's an acknowledgement in that that sort of statement. You'll notice that it's, you know, we know we know this is a problem, but what we'll do is we'll, but I mean, you have to work full time and possibly two jobs, but we'll, we'll subsidize some, some training facilities for you. There's a, there's a dissonance there. We also know, and I'm pulling this off Stats Canada's labor force survey of this year, minimum wage earners are predominantly women. Huh. And knowing that women also tend to be responsible for a lot of childcare, how do we kind of reconcile this idea of how we value work? Just more frustrating misconceptions about when you talk to so many people and the ideas they have about who's earning a minimum wage, it turns out it's predominantly women. A lot of them are from equity-seeking backgrounds. It's not who we think it is. And it's a conversation that I think has to have many different voices to it. I was wondering if you had any last comments or thoughts you'd like to share with us. We hear a lot of, oh, now more than ever. But yeah, actually, in this case, it is now more than ever because uh, we, we cannot go forward with people working full time and not being able to make ends meet. We gotta, we gotta tackle this problem. So thank you once again for having me on. Once again, that was Craig Pickthorne of the Living Wage Network of Ontario. Next, we are speaking to Julie Kwasinski, the Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. She focuses on determining the organization's Ontario legislative and communicative strategies and priorities. The minimum wage has gone up. It was announced the first week of November by the government. And so we were wondering, you know, how will this increase impact small businesses? Well, that's a great question. First and foremost, the issue we had with that minimum wage increase is that there was no consultation whatsoever with small businesses. And the timing is very, very unfortunate as many small businesses are still facing a situation where they may not even yet recover from COVID. But I think the most stark and most difficult thing will be for the restaurant industry. You're looking at a liquor server wage increase of 21% starting January 1st. So for a restaurant industry that's already devastated and basically on its knees trying to survive, that will definitely be a challenge. It sounds like this came unexpected to you guys. I'm just wondering, so we we did hear about this $15 increase in 2017 and then again back in 2019 before it was shut down. Was it really that much of a surprise that the government would bring this back on the table? Uh, Yeah, it was a complete supply because what happened was when the current government was elected in 2018, they froze the minimum wage at $14 and then they waited for a bit, I think a year or two years, 
and then they re-indexed it to inflation. Mm -hmm. So on October 1st, there already was an increase based on inflation. So then we find out that there's another increase coming January 1st. So this was completely unexpected. And what it, what it comes down to is that the government is essentially making this decision. It's an easy answer to a problem about helping people cope with their own costs because governments don't have to pay for the increases. Businesses do. So it's easy for any government to play Santa Claus with somebody else's money and then take credit for it. And I think with the minimum wage versus the living wage, I think everybody knows they're two different things. But it's sad that governments tend to simplify most issues with easy answers. So the issue of people not being able to get ahead is a lot more complex. It deserves more thought and attention, and it will never be solved if governments take the easy way out and foist the issue on businesses through minimum wage increases. So governments should start looking at, okay, we're all hearing about costs going up for people. Costs are going up for businesses too. They're going up for everyone. But by increasing the minimum wage, you're not lowering housing costs. You're not lowering childcare costs. You're not lowering inflation. And essentially, that's the areas that government needs to be looking at to truly look at this issue for the complex nature that it is. Because essentially, the more money people get paid, the more money government collects in taxes. But I think people don't realize, Anna, that when a business has higher payroll costs, they have to pay more in payroll taxes. So anytime anybody's wages go up for any reason, whether it's minimum wage or the business gives their employees more wages, they have to pay more in Canada pension plan, more in employment insurance, and more in workplace safety premiums. And I think what I really want to point out too is that I represent small businesses, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. We represent predominantly smaller businesses. About 90% of our members have under 20 employees. So higher labor and other costs are a lot more difficult to absorb for smaller businesses than for a bigger business like say for example Walmart. And so coming off of that, you know, we do know right now there is a labor shortage, so it's already harder for businesses to hire employees. You know, did we expect maybe more targeted policy from Ford's government to try and help businesses with this shortage instead of just raising a minimum wage, which the wages have gone up regardless because of this shortage? Yeah, that is a very, very good point. Um, what you saw, especially with COVID, and let's pick on, let's pick the restaurant industry as the example. It's a good one. So when restaurants were closed to indoor dining for so long, all of a sudden the market opened. They were allowed to open for indoor customers. So everybody was fighting for the same employees at the same time. So in some cases, wages went up naturally because of supply and demand. But the other thing, too, that people might not realize, Anna, is that when people in the restaurant industry were off work, they used the time, the employees used the time to upskill. 
so they just moved on to other jobs and won't return to that industry ever again. What we have heard from the government, again, like the labor shortage, all labor issues, Anna, they tend to be very multi-layered, like peeling the layers of an onion, and there's no simple solution. And if anybody thinks there is one, they're kidding themselves. And the labor shortage is another great example of a multifaceted issue where the government needs a pronged strategy towards it. What we have seen is the Labour Minister Monty McNaughton, I do believe he's reached reached out to the federal government to see if we can double the number of immigrants allowed into Ontario under the Ontario Immigrant Nominee Program. And the government did pass legislation, Bill 27, recently. It just got royal assent this past week. There's something in there that if you are a regulated profession or if you are in the skilled trades, then you cannot count Canadian experience against people if they don't have it. So that should help move along people's process into getting into jobs. But again, this is never an overnight thing. You can't just snap your fingers and the problem is solved. And it's really sad because today, you know, we're sitting, we're still dealing with COVID. Costs for people have gone up and costs for businesses have gone up too. We actually surveyed our members recently and they told us that the increasing cost of doing business was their top concern at 76%, followed by supply chain challenges at 64%. So what we're looking at, so we're coming up to January 1st and the point I'm raising here is the timing of the current government's wage increase, minimum wage increase. So commercial insurance costs for businesses have skyrocketed. Some businesses can't even get insurance, Anna. We've heard horror stories. One business told us their insurance has gone up sixfold. And it's just like driving a car. If you don't have commercial insurance, you can't operate. Business costs have been escalating through supply chains. Small businesses are bracing for the largest Canada pension plan hike to date under the federal government CPP increase plan. Many businesses will lose their commercial eviction protection in mid-January and they'll be asked to make up immediately for months of unpaid rent potentially. And some small firms are continuing to face high hydro costs while they wait for the current government to keep their election promise from 2018 to cut hydro rates by 12 percent that's that's really quite interesting so basically you're telling me businesses aren't doing well and they've had a hard time getting back on their feet and we know that slowly slowly financial aid they've been receiving from the federal government will be phased out so given all of that what would you have liked to see from ford's government policy-wise to help these businesses kind of kickstart? Well, I think definitely in many cases is we've been asking for a third round of the small business support grant. And even if they targeted it to businesses that really, really, truly need it, so that that support is still available. Because I think people may not realize that Ontario had something called the Ontario Small Business Support Grant, and it ended on April 7th. And that was one day before the third lockdown began. 
which was on April 8th. So essentially, Ontario small businesses received no grant support for the third lockdown from the Ontario government. And many of them were not eligible. So that was another problem too. When the grant came out, it really helped the people that qualified. But on the other side, the ones that didn't qualify were left out in the cold. So I see how businesses are struggling. But we're also looking at workers who have been... I think a little bit disappointed with this $15 wage. A lot of people consider it underwhelming considering it was first proposed in 2017 and then knocked down in 2019. So it does feel like we're bringing back something that we could have, that could have been put in place a long time ago. So in that sense, talking about, you mentioned the living wage earlier. We know that in Toronto, the living wage is about $22. How many small businesses uh, that you work with do you think would be able to afford such a living wage? I can tell you right now that would wipe a lot of businesses out because you have to remember, Anna, that is a Toronto number and there's yes. more to Ontario than Toronto. There are over 400 municipalities in Ontario. So if you were to mirror that same number, the $22, in a small rural community where employers simply couldn't pay it because they have lower sales volumes, lower margins, and in fairness, the cost of living is much lower in those other communities. So that would I mean, if you're if you're suggesting or if it would mean going from 15 to 22, and especially if the suggestion would be in a short amount of time, that would clearly wipe out many businesses because you would be looking at 15 to 22 dollars. That's almost a uh, 50 percent increase. So the question is sitting down at the table to figure out what is the goal here? Is the goal to help people get farther ahead? If it is, then we really need to have a serious discussion that goes way beyond the minimum wage. And as I mentioned earlier in the interview, this is a complex issue. And it's almost an insult to people to just suggest we'll throw more money at you and hopefully the problem will be solved. It deserves more thought and attention. It will never be solved unless the government sits down and looks at what costs are people facing. How can we get those costs down so people have more money? Whether it's childcare costs, whether it's housing costs, whether it's inflation costs. And ideally, I mean, let's not kid ourselves here. The government, the more money people make, the more money governments collect in taxes. So why not? Here's a novel idea. Why not look at as one part of the strategy, because no one single thing will solve this. Why not let more people keep more of their hard-earned money? instead of the government taking it away in taxes. For example, why not lift the threshold for the basic personal income tax exemption? That could be done. But again, we need to sit down here. We have to figure out what is the purpose of all this? Because we keep circling the drain on the minimum wage. The issue keeps coming up. And what that tells me is the problem is not being solved. And it's not being solved because businesses Governments tend to use the same approach. Let's go to business, force them to pay people more money, and then we take credit for it, uh, clap our hands and walk away. And they've got to look at these other issues. They're looking at it in a silo. They've got to look at these other costs. Again, whether it's childcare, whether it's housing, whether it's inflation, if they really, really are truly interested in helping people get ahead, which I think everybody can agree on that goal. 
One last question for me. The fall economic statement also outlined investments in training, retraining, and skilled trades. Do you think these investments, as we were talking earlier, for the example of restaurants, could hurt potentially the service industry in the long term trying to get employees if, if people are simply retraining and working elsewhere? No, actually, I look at it differently because the skilled trades is another area. And we're looking at people like tool and die makers and millwrights. And there are shortages of people in these trades. And part of the problem, Anna, has been the stigma. My father was a tool and die maker who came from Poland. And I'm very proud of that. What I learned from my father's experience is even then, this is years ago, I don't want to date myself, that he retired and came out of retirement and was paid a consultant's fee because even back then there was a shortage of tool and die makers. So the problem has existed for decades. The stigma that it's not cool to be a skilled tradesperson. Like it's not cool to get your hands dirty. And we do appreciate that Minister McNaughton is trying to get rid of that stigma. It's a challenge. A lot of communications have to be undergone. But I think, you know, I've heard him in a few news conferences talking about how these are great paying jobs. And they are. Mm -hmm. It's just people are not taking them. And part of the problem is the stigma. So uh, we wholeheartedly at CFIB, we have a lot of members that have reached out to us that they can't find people for these jobs. They sim- It's not even a matter of how much to pay them. There's just nobody that's applying. So that should be helpful. It remains to be seen, but we're very positive that there will be positive outcomes from investments in the skilled trades for sure. That's amazing. Well, honestly, thank you very much, Julie. It's been a really interesting conversation. Once again, that was Julie Kwasinski of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. Our next guest is Dr. Darius Ornson. Dr. Darius Ornson is an associate professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto, where he specializes in the politics of cooperation and change. An expert in Nordic innovation policy, Dr. Ornson has also written two books, When Small States Make Big Leaps and Good Governance Gone Bad. Since moving to Canada, his research has focused on Canadian cities, including their resilience to anchor firm collapse and their role of storytelling as a form of collective action. At the Monk School, he teaches comparative politics of the welfare state, which is why he joins us here today. Thank you so much, Dr. Ornston, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So to start us off, I'm curious about your thoughts on minimum wage as opposed to a universal basic income or negative income tax as other methods of reaching a standard living wage. Could you distinguish between these different models for our listeners and give us your thoughts on which model you think is best for achieving a living wage? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think people, when they talk about a living wage, they tend to fixate on one solution, like a minimum wage or a universal basic income, uh, where you know, policymakers have several tools at their disposal to address this, right? So you mentioned the minimum wage. I think that's pretty straightforward. That would be one. You mentioned the negative income tax, which would be a second. And there are going to be some trade-offs there, right? So with a negative income tax, that's where the government would be topping up the income of low wage earners. And it would be doing that from government funds. So it would be taxpayers that are paying for that, right? And that has, I think, two advantages. From the perspective of business, business is no longer paying for that higher wage itself. So a firm that's struggling to meet payroll is going to have less of an issue with the negative income tax than it is with the minimum wage. And that's one of the reasons why you might see more bipartisan support for a negative income tax in the United States, for example, 
Um, it's one of the areas where Democrats and Republicans agree uh, as opposed to a minimum wage, right? The second advantage of a negative income tax versus a minimum wage is that you don't worry as much about negative employment effects. So uh, anyone who's had economics 101, certainly when I had economics 101 many years ago, learned that if you increase the minimum wage, if you increase anything above the market clearing level, then supply is gonna outstrip demand. And in the context of the labor market, doing anything to increase the wage above market levels is gonna cause the supply of labor to exceed the demand for labor, which is unemployment, right? So you raised the minimum wage and you're gonna see unemployment. And the unemployment is gonna be concentrated among the most vulnerable groups in society. So the lowest skilled or lowest productivity workers are the ones that employers are least interested in hiring. The youth could be minorities, could be women and so on. So those are the trade-offs with the minimum wage and the negative income tax. And then you mentioned universal basic income, right? So the issue with both the minimum wage and the negative income tax is that they target workers. They don't address poverty or vulnerability among the non-working population, people who might be looking for work because they're unemployed or people who might be disabled or caring for others. And so that's where a universal basic income might come into play. And you're paying everyone a certain amount of money, probably through the tax and transfer system. So it's probably the government that's paying for that. We could talk about a universal basic income as an alternative. I think it is extremely expensive and runs into all sorts of problems. And most people, when they say they favor a universal basic income, probably have something more in mind like a basic income guarantee, where you guarantee a certain income floor for everyone, regardless of their labor market status, but you're not paying every single person in society the same amount of money, right? Businesses are not going to be wild about that because both UBI and a basic income guarantee uh, will tend to raise what's called the reservation wage of labor, uh, the wage that you need to pay to get someone off their couch and into the labor force. So it's kind of similar to a minimum wage from a firm's perspective, right? I was wondering if you could give us your thoughts on David Card's research, which recently awarded him the Nobel Prize in Economics. Card conducted observational studies on different counties which had raised minimum wage versus keeping minimum wage constant and found that an increase to minimum wage led to higher economic growth and an overall increase in labor employed. So what were your thoughts on minimum wage before Card's research and have your thoughts changed since? Yeah, so I did not learn about David Card's research in my economics 101 class many years ago. I'm not even sure it was published at that point, right? And so it challenged that economic orthodoxy that I laid out just a couple of minutes ago and found that you can raise the minimum wage and labor supply won't outstrip demand. You're not going to see an increase in unemployment. And you could say, all right, well, that's just one study, right? You don't want to make you don't want to base public policy based on one study because it just could be an anomaly or whatever. It doesn't travel, but it's been replicated in other studies again and again and again that these increases in the minimum wage in the U.S. is where I'm seeing most of the studies have minimal employment effects. So that's, you know, that's really reassuring that you could raise the minimum wage and not impact the labor market. It comes with a couple of notes of caution. One David Card, and in general, these studies are looking at relatively small increases in the minimum wage. 
And they also tend to be relatively short term in duration because who has the time to follow something for 20 years and wait for it to get published, right? So that suggests that firms aren't firing workers en masse when you raise the minimum wage. It could obscure a decrease, a longer term decrease in hiring. People like Jacob Vigdor have found lower working hours among adolescents uh, after the increased minimum wage in Seattle. So that could have knock-on effects down the road that, you know, don't sh show up in these short-term studies. But the results, you know, the results have been really encouraging. And I will say there's actually a, a more recent piece of work by Gadui and Reich that looks at a larger increase in the minimum wage and focuses on some of the more vulnerable groups. So it focuses on rural regions in the U.S., which tend to have lower wage levels overall and where an increase in the minimum wage would be really significant. And they are also sensitive to vulnerable groups. So they look specifically at women, Black people, Hispanic people. And even when the minimum wage goes up to 80% of the medium wage, which is really quite large, they do not find negative impacts, even among these groups, right? So all of this is to say that what Card did was pretty impressive and original in challenging the conventional wisdom, but I think it's increasingly becoming the conventional wisdom that you can, in fact, increase minimum wages without you know, adverse labor market impacts, at least up to a certain point, which is important, and we might want to come back to that. Why don't we touch on that right now? You mentioned there being a sweet spot or a point beyond which raising minimum wage becomes less efficient. Is that due to the disincentives of working harder if we are all guaranteed a living wage or for other reasons? I guess the, the employment problems can come from two ways, right? On the one hand, you could be disincentivizing labor, encouraging people to just stay at home. And that's really more the concern with universal basic income or a basic income guarantee rather than a minimum wage. Because with a minimum wage, uh, if you're earning even more at work than your incentives to show up and work or work longer hours, or, you know, potentially even stronger, right? So the advantage of the minimum wage is that it doesn't discourage labor market participation in that respect. It is a concern that I have with UBI or basic income guarantee. And I am aware that the vast majority of pilot studies do not find significant labor market disincentive effects to a universal basic income or a basic income guarantee. So you say, okay, great, let's do that. But much like the minimum wage, these are short-term studies that usually analyze temporary pilot projects. So people know that the payment is gonna end, which makes them a lot less likely to exit the labor market if they know they're gonna lose the cash payment in two years. Would there be labor market disincentive effects if we did this on a permanent basis? Uh, I kind of worry that they would based on my reading of European history and some of the labor market disincentive effects, disincentive effects that you saw in Nordic Europe when they had very generous, unconditional unemployment benefit systems in the 1980s, which they've since restructured and, and tightened it up. So I worry about that. And then there's, there's also uh, potentially gender stratification. So if women we're more likely to use a universal basic income or a basic income guarantee to fulfill caretaking responsibilities due to gender norms and social pressure and so on and so forth. Then suddenly you're seeing women drop out of the labor market in larger numbers than men. And that could undo you know, a decade or two of labor market progress. 
As Ontario and the rest of the world is slowly but hopefully moving out of a recession caused by the pandemic, do you see raising minimum wage as a stimulant for further economic growth? And in your opinion, is now the right time to do so? I don't know that I'd say that now is the right time to do so. So yes, I, I, I don't think the minimum wage, an increase to $15, especially from $14 to $15, is going to have a huge impact on the labor market. And we have all of these studies that suggest that. And you know, employment will probably remain the same. It's going to be somewhat disruptive for some firms. There are large, highly profitable firms that rely on low-wage labor, and they can afford this increase, and they probably should be paying their workers more. There are also small and medium-sized firms in lower productivity sectors, usually personal services, because productivity doesn't grow as fast in personal services as it does in manufacturing. And I guess things are better now than they were a year ago, but they're not great. So I don't think this is a fantastic time to be raising the minimum wage. I'm not, I'm not objecting to it, but it, it would be in an ideal world, you would, you would do it when the economy is you know, stronger and small and medium-sized enterprises and personal services are doing better. And I think it's, it's really the mirror image of what we were talking about before. So while a minimum wage doesn't create employment problems because people stay at home and sit on their couch, it does make it less attractive for employers to hire workers. And so the unemployment that you see is employers who would like to hire a person, they basically can't afford it at that given wage. There's just not enough productivity generated to pay $15 or whatever. It's interesting considering the contrast between what you just brought up, that raising minimum wage can often make labor too expensive for firms who then cannot hire workers at that price, with the fact that coming out of the pandemic, we see a rise in elected unemployment where workers are being more selective about their jobs. So combined with the fact that the minimum wage is only being increased by $1, this all seems quite incompatible. Yeah, and, and this is why I'm not opposed to an increase in the minimum wage at this time, because wages, I think I saw today that the, the wages of the lowest earning American workers are increasing more rapidly than they have since 2007 or something like that. So wages are going up anyway. Employers are naturally raising wages to hire or attract you know, labor, and an increase in the minimum wage merely formalizes that. So I agree with your point. I'm, I'm not alarmed about this. I do think it's important to recognize that employers vary in their ability to pay these wages. And so what you're going to see is some sort of structural change where there are almost certainly going to be firms that are going to struggle to adapt at the higher wage and other firms that are completely fine with it. And that underscores the fact that the minimum wage is more than just about the wage in the labor market. There's a broader social infrastructure or set of institutions that you need to help people, both workers and entrepreneurs and capital owners, navigate this kind of stuff. And historically, Sweden was great at that. Historically, Sweden was relentlessly increasing the wages of its lowest paid workers. It was deliberately driving low productivity firms out of business, killing them en masse. But it had retraining programs, high quality education, 
public housing, the ability to ship people around the country from declining regions to growth centers in a way that it was able to, to handle that kind of pace of economic change. So Canada is a little bit you know, less great on that front. I, that would, that's why I would be concerned about a big increase in the minimum wage, but a $1 increase of the sort that we're talking about, I don't see evidence that suggests that that's going to be a big problem. And you reference Sweden as a country who has raised the minimum wage well and achieved a more long-term stable wage growth throughout the country while also reducing the number of low productivity firms. What are some strategies or opportunities that Canada has to mimic the Swedish labor market model and what challenges would Canada face? There are countries that have run into trouble historically by increasing wages too much. The U.S. studies show no effect, but you know, if you go back to my college days in Econ 101, Germany had a terrible unemployment problem, and that was, I think, widely accepted that it was due to the effective wage that workers were earning. Uh, they didn't get to take home all of that. That was partly um, social contributions, so welfare benefits that were deducted from their, in the form of payroll taxes from their wages. But the cost of hiring a worker in Germany was really high. And you saw exactly the pattern of dysfunction that I described before, where unemployment was also very high. Low productivity industries like services were getting killed and the burden was disproportionately borne by the most vulnerable people in society. So women and immigrants in the case of Germany, right? And so there is, there is a point at which, you know, the, the wage is too high. I, $20, um, which I've heard floated around when the median wage in Ontario is $24, strikes me as pushing the boundaries of what's okay, the point at which you might start to run into problems. But it's, it's endogenous. It's something, that threshold is something that you can influence through policy choice and change and move around. And I think that brings us back to Sweden, which did a good job of doing that. It does it did and it still does a good job of investing in its workers through education um, and by raising the productivity of its workers it then increases the amount of money that firms can pay them uh, so they can afford a higher wage whether it's legislated through a minimum wage or whether it's achieved through collective bargaining right so to the extent that canada invests more heavily in education and i would say also education targeting the, the lowest skilled workers, right? So it's vocational training programs and college, technical colleges and so on and so forth, because we're not worrying about the software engineers from the University of Waterloo. Then, you know, it'll, it'll have more leeway to basically introduce a higher minimum wage or pay a higher minimum wage. And then there's also the, the component of structural change, which is getting people out of declining firms and into growing firms. And that's not just a story about retraining, but it's also a story about licensing restrictions and being able to move from province to province as one province is declining and another one is growing. Can you afford a house? Housing affordability is a key component of geographic mobility. There's a lot to tackle. And that's where being a large country and not having the most coordinated polity in the world becomes a bit of an issue because getting all those pieces moving in the same direction is tough, right? The final thing I would say about Sweden though and I just want to reiterate this is, again, though, Sweden's great. Uh, they do have a high effective minimum wage. 
uh, and the people who struggle the most with that are immigrants. So, you know, once again, it's the most vulnerable of the low skilled workers that bear the brunt of any overshooting. And so anytime there's a minimum wage being introduced and you're studying its effects, I think it's important to look not just at low wage workers on average, but also just make sure the kind of canary in the coal mine, what's happening to the most vulnerable within that category uh, and see how they're being affected. And sometimes uh, the minimum wage doesn't seem to have an impact at all, which is great, but there is a certain threshold at which it starts to. Perfect. Thank you so much again for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Once again, that was Dr. Darius Ernston. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Many thanks to our guests for joining us to discuss Ontario's new minimum wage. Today's show was produced by Michaela Gill and Anna Lazarus. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all of our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airways.